0: It's been good worshiping together this morning. It's great to reflect in on what God has done for us through Christ. Before we take a a look at today's uh, passage, which is in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, I did want to make a note about uh, our men's ministry, our men's discipleship, Frontline. 18 weeks ago, we embarked on a journey through the Bible where we started in Genesis And tonight we will finish that adventure by taking a look at the book of Revelation. Uh, I just want to take a moment to thank the men who have committed to this study. It has been um, a very aggressive plan. We've gone through most of the Bible in 18 weeks. And so there's been high expectations and attendance has been phenomenal. Uh, Participation has been great. People have done the reading. So men, thank you very much. I also want to thank uh, the, the wives and families of these men because that comes with a sacrifice, Sunday nights for sure, but also through the week as there's an expectation of three to five hours of Bible reading a week. Uh, my hope is as we go from here that some of those patterns though would continue, maybe not as uh, as deeply, but that men you would continue to read the Bible and uh, wives and families that you would Uh, celebrate your husbands as they seek to dig deep into the scriptures and hopefully it's beginning to happen that husbands are reading the bible with their wife with their kids if they have a wife and children Uh, and that would be the next phase so as you continue to read the bible read it together as a family talk about it teach it learn it uh, discuss it as we go forward today's text is in romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 In some ways, this is a really simple text. In some ways, it's a list of things that we ought to be and do. And in other ways, it's complicated because it can be abstract. What does Paul mean when he says, let love be genuine? What what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, The other thing that makes this very tricky is it's very tempting to read this passage and forget about the rest of the book of Romans which is possible to do. It's very possible to just drop yourself in Romans 12 verse 9 and forget everything that came before it. So we have to remember that there's a context to what we're about to read, that that Paul hasn't just decided to start writing in Romans 12 verse 9. In fact, everything that comes before it is necessary for rightly interpreting it. So we'll remember in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we were told, in fact, Paul appealed to us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And there was an important word in Romans 12.1 and that important word is the word therefore. Therefore forces us to go back to Romans 1-11 to and to understand that whatever we do, whatever we do in obedience to God, whatever we do in presenting our bodies as living sacrifices whatever we do to try and be holy and acceptable to God it is all prefaced by the fact that God has already initiated and accomplished this for us that's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about that that we love God because he first loved us we are righteous because he has made us righteous we are obedient because He has made us obedient from the heart. And so the gospel underlies all of this. Otherwise, we will fall into legalism and moralism where we strive to be and to do certain things to achieve something that has already been achieved for us. It's crucial that we make that point every week until we're done the book of Romans. We cannot understand Romans 12 through 16 without always reminding ourselves that these chapters stand squarely on chapters 1 through 11. All of these chapters, 12 through 16, are Paul's way of teasing out what it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. What does that mean? Partially, it means to respond to what God has done for us. That is, we unite ourselves with the sacrifice of Christ and reflecting upon what God has done for us, we are compelled to worship Him with our very lives. What we do with our bodies, with our brains, with our tongues, matters to God. More than that, though, chapters 12 through 16 will tell us specifically, if you want to present your life as a living sacrifice to God, here are some specific ways in which you can do that. So last week, we looked at the first example of what it means to be a living sacrifice. And last week, the command was, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. How do you present your body as a living sacrifice to God? Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That was last week. Well, well, how do we fulfill that? And it was counterintuitive, but what we discovered, that the great solution, the great anecdote to thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is to serve in the local church. If you serve in the local church without competing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a great leveling act uh, in many ways. Number one, you see that everyone is necessary. Everyone is making a contribution. But here's the second thing. Uh, We know each other. It's really hard to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think in your own family because you have family members who remind you who you are. And so it should be in the local church. It's easy to be, for example, a preacher to the nations if the nations don't know you. It's easy to be an author for churches that are not your local church, but no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. You know me, and I know you. You know my weaknesses, and I know your weaknesses. And so don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The great solution, the great anecdote to arrogance in the Christian life is to root yourself vulnerably and transparently in the local church. That was last week. Now, there's a flip side to that, but I'm in danger of re-preaching last week. Everyone is valuable, In the local church so we see the value of one another in the local church so not only do we bring each other down we lift each other up today uh, we're going to look at the second way that we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God and that is to let our love be genuine let me read today's text would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 we're going to read verses 9 through 21 as you're finding your place please stand for the reading of the Word of God This is the Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil... And hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot here for us to consider. None of us is perfectly living out today's preaching text. So I pray that where there's room to grow, you would help us to grow each at our own pace according to the grace at work in us. For we do want to give our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to you. God, help me to preach. Help us to receive the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So you see the struggle, perhaps, just from reading this text. There's a lot of instruction there. And how do you you go about preaching a text like this? This is what I wrestled with this week. Uh, It can very easily become a list of to-dos. It can very easily become a benchmark where you say, live up to this standard or you're not a very good Christian. I don't believe that's Paul's intent, because we have all of the preceding verses, as I said, in the book of Romans. We are to be spurred forward by this, but not to be weighed down by it. And in order to preach it that way, in addition to reminding us of God's initiative by sending Christ, to justify, sanctify, and glorify us. He has chosen us and elected us. And so our job is to respond. That's one way that I want to help us in this passage. The second way is to recognize that this is not just a laundry list of to-dos. There's a structure here. There's actually a structure in the text. And, and if you've studied hermeneutics with me, as a good many of you have, I think structure is crucially important. If there's two things you need in order to understand any passage of the Bible, it's context and structure. So we've talked about context, now let's talk about structure. The structure of this text is in some ways very simple. It it starts with a command, and then it is followed with the instruction. The command is very short. The command is verse 9, the first part. Let love be genuine. That captures the essence of the whole passage. So if you had to summarize these verses, Paul summarizes them with that little superscription or title. Let love be genuine that's what we are to do in light of what god has done for us we are to respond we are to give our bodies as living sacrifices how do we do that by loving but not artificial love not a pretended love not a manufactured love a genuine love and the the word here for love is agape that is allow the love of god agape is love that is only natural to god allow the love of god to be received and then to overflow from you. So we cannot agape, we cannot love genuinely unless we have first received the love of God through the gospel. Once you've received the gospel, once once you realize that God loves you, once you realize that God has forgiven you, once you realize all that God has poured into your life, then, then our task, so it is, is to just overflow with that agape love that's the sense of this entire text so you see how that guards against legalism be filled up with the agape love of god so much so that it overflows you now think of it this way if god has forgiven you how can you not forgive others let's go back to jesus you who have been forgiven so much can you not forgive a little You who have received so much of the lavish love of God, can you not love others? You you who have received the grace and the mercy of God, can you not be gracious and merciful? And so it's reflecting on what you've received that prompts the extension of that very same thing to one another. So that's the command. The second part of this text, which goes from verse 9b to the end 21 is the instruction well how practically are we going to fulfill this command let's take a look a little bit at the command i've already started 12 9a let love be genuine we offer our lives as living sacrifices in response to god by loving genuinely this is nice but what does it mean What does it mean to love genuinely? If you're you're one of those people who, who wants to be meticulous and exact, okay, love, first of all, love is a difficult word because in Greek there's four different words for love. So this is agape love. This is not romantic love or brotherly love or parental love. This is that I'm going to be a blessing to others even when they're not a blessing to me. It's this unconditional, undeserved I want the good for others no matter who they are or what they've done so how do we do that genuinely not hypocritically not uh, forcibly or uh, pre- by pretense or to pretend there's two options at this point this is, I just want to invite you into my study I'm like okay how am I going to define this there's two options I could do a word study on the word genuine. What, what does it mean to love genuinely? And I could do a, a word study on the word love. And we could fill the rest of our time talking about agape, and we could, and, and the rest of our time on a, what does it mean to be genuine. However, I don't think when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he expected them to do a word study when they got to this point. I don't think he wanted them to parse out what is agape and what does it mean to agape genuinely which is what verses 9b through 21 are all about. In fact, Paul will tell us. That's what this passage is. This passage is telling us, what does it look like to love genuinely? So, rather than going further afield in the Bible trying or to the Webster's dictionary or to Brown Driver's Briggs or to some other uh, original language dictionary, let's just read the passage because Paul will tell us what does it mean to love genuinely he parses that out for us in verses 9b through 21 now if you look closely take a look in your bibles what comes right after the command to let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good now he goes on and from verses 10 through 20 there's a whole lot of other commands so we have an option here we can either say that to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good is just one of the next 10 or 11 commands or we can go down to the bottom look at verse 21 do not become do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good do you notice that so what paul has done here is he says here's the command You need to allow your agape love to be genuine. Well, thank you, Paul, but I don't know what you mean. What is agape and what is genuine agape look like? So level two, what does it mean to love genuinely? Well, it means what we see in 9b and c in verse 21. To love genuinely is to abhor. Abhor means to hate. To hate what is evil and to hold fast to what is good, to love what is good. So, if you are going to love genuinely, how do you do that? Well, you love good and you hate evil. We see that again in 21. Don't become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, good and evil are in verses 9 and 21. Are you following me? So, that defines for us what it means to love genuinely. To love genuinely... To be filled and overflow with agape is to be like God. To hate evil, and because you hate it, you don't do evil. To love good, to hold fast to it, and because you love it and hold fast to it, you will do good. You will overcome evil with good. And if you do that, then you will be agape in I don't think that's a word. You will agape genuinely. Okay. Well, we're making progress, but still. What is good and evil? Couldn't we all define good and evil slightly differently? I might say, well, this is good. And you might say, well, I consider that to be evil. How do, how do we know what is good and evil? And let me just pause here before I answer the question with the text. That's verses 10 through 20. Paul will define good and evil for us. But let me pause before we get to these nine illustrations to just challenge us. None of us have fully clung, have, has fully clung to what is good. None of us fully abhor what is evil. We reserve little secret places in our flesh to nurture and to love and to cultivate that which is evil. Now I could at this point come up with some random examples, but why don't you just reflect in on that for a second and invite the Holy Spirit. What is it? And maybe you don't even know. Like here's the problem. If you're not in the Bible, you don't even know what good is and what evil is. Even though we're Christians, the flesh, it, it, it partially blinds us so that we need to constantly, going back to Romans 12, to be renewing our minds. And we talked about how to renew your mind is to think biblically. Because unless we're thinking biblically, we'll be thinking culturally. And our culture calls good evil and evil Good. And none of us has a pristine view of what is good and evil. And the only place where we can define good and evil, it's not in your feelings, it's not in your emotions, it's not in your experience, it's not in your, in your opinion either, even. The only place where we can truly define good and evil is in the Word of God, which means we have to devote our lives to discovering good and evil in this book. And isn't it interesting that God said to Adam, on the day you eat of that, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Because when Adam took of the fruit, when he disobeyed God, he allowed evil to overcome good. And now, as Christians, as we've been made obedient from the heart, because Christ has undone our fallen Adam, and he is a second Adam, he is in us, reversing the fall, and now good is to overcome evil. That's the Christian life. It's progressive, but we cannot do that unless we know what it is to be good and we know what it is to be evil, because all of us still love in our flesh evil. But God says you cannot cultivate evil and at the same time offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, a little bit of a caveat. We can progressively grow in in our giving of ourselves as living sacrifices as we renew our minds to think biblically. And a big part of that is to become reacquainted with what is good and what is evil. And just because we are Christians does not mean we Naturally, define good as good and evil as evil. And in fact, in this journey of sanctification, we will all come up against the scripture and say, Huh, I don't know. I don't know if I could go there with the Word of God. I don't know that I agree with the Word of God. Why? Because we have a faulty view of good and evil. But if you truly belong to Christ, your deepest desire is for good. So live from the inside out. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now Paul helps us. In verses 10 through 20, he gives us nine illustrations. So I'm not going to come up with my own illustrations for this sermon to define good and evil. I'm going to allow... Paul to give us nine illustrations now again just like I said last week when he was defining the gifts in the church and if you're a teacher teach if you're you know generous give generously if whatever Uh, those were not exhaustive this is not exhaustive this is just a short list to get us started down the road of what is good and what is evil so do you see the structure of this text then context give your bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual, your rational worship. Okay? Good. How do I do that? Well, in today's text, let your love be genuine. Okay, I want to do that. But what is genuine agape? Well, it is to love good and to hate evil. And because you love good and you hate evil, you'll do good and you won't do evil. Okay, fine. What is good and evil? That's verses 10 through 20. Okay? So we're going to go through these one at a time. There's nine of them, which means, by definition, I'm not going to give any of them enough attention. But what I will do is just introduce them to us, and then you can spend the week prayerfully meditating on them and seeking to come closer to the plumb line of what is good so that you can hate what is evil illustration number one this is what it means for love to be genuine to love and to do the good and to hate and not to do the evil verse 10 love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor so he goes from agape love to philadelphia love brotherly love If you want to extend the agape love of God, you need to love Christians like brothers and sisters. And in a lot of ways, I don't think we need to make it any more complicated. One of the pitfalls, uh, when we get to passages like this, we want to make it super complicated. It's not super complicated. Love each other like brothers and sisters. And unless we love each other like brothers and sisters, we are not exercised, we're not overflowing with the agape love of God. The agape love of God means that those who have been saved by Christ love one another like brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but brothers and sisters in my household ha, fight. So we can fight with one another. That's good news. But don't pick on my sister. I'll fight with her, but anyone outside of the family, I'm her brother, and I'll protect her. So it's an in-the-family kind of fight. So when conflict arises, and conflict will arise, because we're brothers and sisters, and we fight like siblings, let us fight like siblings if we're going to fight. And no siblings fight forever. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some, some do. But that's not ideal. Brotherly love is a love where we're just bound together. We have the same parents. God is our Father. He goes on and he says, if you love each other like brothers and sisters, you will outdo one another in showing honor. And this, again, don't make this any more complicated because of the archaic language. It means we look for ways to help others raise up each other we exalt one another rather than exalting ourselves we exalt one another so I want to exalt you I want to be proud of what you're doing I don't want to keep you down so that my star can rise I want to exalt you and you should exalt one another not trying to put ourselves over any of our brothers and sisters but trying to seek the best possible life for one another at that will if we can do that then our love will be genuine illustration number 2 is verse 11 do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the lord slothful in zeal anyone speak like that in your regular day to oh, day i'm just feeling slothful in zeal today no but what does it mean i don't feel like going to church I don't feel like going to the Bible study. I don't want to stay for the potluck. I don't feel like reading my Bible today. So so slothful and zeal is something we're all familiar with. And and just here's a little secret. The pastor doesn't always want to go to church and the pastor doesn't always want to lead the Bible study. But one of the great blessings that I have is I have to. (laughs) And so if we all thought like that, trust me, once you get there, you feel so much better when you go home. It's easy to be slothful in zeal, especially in the winter. Uh, you've all had that experience. It's cold out. It's dark out. The fire is cozy inside. You've had a long day. You've had a long week. So it's so easy to be slothful in zeal. It just is. I'm not blaming anyone for that. I, I experience that. We all do. But if our love is to be genuine... We make it our life goal to gather together, to spur one another on in the faith, to to grow in godliness, to get into the Word of God, even when it's not easy. So don't be slothful in zeal. Look for opportunities to join together with your brothers and sisters, to use illustration one, to worship God. Be fervent in spirit. It's not always easy to come to church and actually worship. So you might get here. Okay. You overcame slothful and zeal. Good. You're here. Now be fervent in spirit. I've had those weeks where my mouth is saying the words, but my heart is not engaged in the lyrics. Anyone else have had that? I'm not fervent in spirit. Do you know what would be better in those moments? And this one of my professors told me this. And I... I have gone back to this so many times. When you're not engaged in a joyful worship, stop singing and just say, God, I'm struggling to be fervent in spirit, but you are God and you saved me. And Christ is king. And he says, he used himself as an example. I've done this myself. Just sit at the back Don't pretend to be fervent in spirit and begin to tell God all the things that you affirm to be true. You may never get fervency in spirit in that worship service, but more often than not, before the end of the last song, you'll be singing. Maybe not, but better to affirm authentically who God is and what God has done than to mouth the words and not mean it. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We talked about that last week. Love is genuine when everyone has a contribution to make in the church. Illustration number three, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. What these three things have in common is the reality that life is hard. Hard. Life is hard. We're in the wilderness waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back and to be our Joshua to take us into the promised land. While we're in the wilderness, life is hard. Don't expect it not to be. So how can love be genuine when life is hard? Are we only going to allow ourselves to overflow with the agape love of God when our circumstances are positive? Well, that's not Genuine agape. And so Paul says here, acknowledging it, that life is hard, he says, Rejoice in hope. What is hope? Hope looks forward to a day when it's not hard. Well, what is that day? What is the day when life won't be hard? It's the day that Christ returns and he takes us into the promised land, or it's the, the day of your death. Have you ever looked forward to the day of your death with hope? For me to die is gain sometimes all you can hope for is death now before you think i'm being morbid it's because on the day this body stops working i transition to a new and greater way of living i am in the presence of the lord so though life is hard now our days are numbered so you rejoice now by drawing on the future good which is a recognition of hope rejoice if you can't rejoice in your circumstances now rejoice that your name is written in the lamb's book of life that on the day of the final judgment the wrath of god will pass over you rejoice on the of of that day rejoice that after the wrath of god passes over you god says come here i have an address for you i have a place for you in the new heavens and the new earth go check it out and you go to the in the new jerusalem and you find that you do have a mailing address there He's prepared a place for you. Rejoice that you'll be raised from the dead and and you'll never die again. You'll never get sick. You'll never sin. You'll never desire to sin. Rejoice about that day. So when life is hard, you allow your love to be genuine by rejoicing in hope. Moving on in the same idea, you, you have to be patient then in tribulation. What is that? When life is hard, that's tribulation. You have to be patient. You have to endure it. And the only way you can endure it is if you're constant in prayer. God, give me an eternal perspective. Help me to remember that that I have a great hope. Unless we do those things, we will not overflow with the agape love of God. We will be woe is me people. And woe is me people are inward focused and inward focused people do not overflow with the agape love of god they begin to cling to that what is evil they look for temporary escape through the temporary fleeting pleasure of transient evil pleasures We have to have eternal perspectives, which is why I talk so much about resurrection and so much about the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Illustration number four, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. How can our love be genuine? How do we know what is good and not good? Well, it is good to give away what you have. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Give away your time and your money for fellow Christians. No hoarding. Hoarding is evil. Now I know there's a show called Hoarders. That's evil. But there's a lesser form of that kind of hoarding, which I'm guilty of. Maybe I'm not the only one to have too much stuff, stuff that we don't need, stuff that if we did get rid of it, we'd be in a position to contribute to the needs of the saints. Maybe it means giving something I have to someone else. We're doing pretty good on that, but there's always room to grow. Always room to grow. This life together. Tied to that is opening up your home for hospitality. Now, the, the Greek word hospitality is stranger love you know you teach your kids not to talk to strangers and now we're told to love your strangers uh, but this idea is to open up your home especially to christians that are traveling but you can, the the range of this word is more is to open up your home to to allow what god has blessed you with with a home and use it for the saints so that actually my home is literally not my home. This whole idea of private property is true. Yeah, I, 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 I rent, but I, I temporarily have a possession over the property that I rent. But that rental property is meant for the church. And so if you rent or if you own a home, you own it or you rent it for your own sake, but more than for your own sake for the church. So if you're not using your home for the church, that you want to begin to. There's different ways and different levels of doing this. Some people have the gift of hospitality so that their house is a revolving door. You don't have to have a revolving door house. Some people are extroverts, some are introverts. It's not easy. This is not equal. We don't use our homes equally, but in some way, use what you have for the church. Illustration number, where are we, five? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is a tough one. This requires us to recognize that we are going to have enemies. No one is greater than his master. If the world hated Jesus, the world will hate us if we call ourselves by His name. So we can either get real mad and real angry about it, and we can seek justice, and we can seek to dominate our enemies we can seek to control them to legislate against them or and i'm not saying there's not a place for christian leadership through legislation however that's maybe not the first route because in our discourse in our heart attitudes in our behavior we can very easily curse those who hate Jesus and by hating Jesus, hate us. We can curse those who don't have a Christian worldview and are making our world a living hell. We can curse those who are uh, turning North America into an anti-Christian place to live. We can curse them and fight them and be in a great war against them. It's natural, but we're to bless those who persecute us. To bless and not to curse so even if we seek the route of legislation on certain things, are we, with what PR campaign are we doing that? Does the world think that we are cursing or are we seeking to be a blessing? So that's, we can see it on the crowd level, we can see it on the personal level. It's, sometimes in your own families, it's not easy to be a Christian. So we can, get, we can dig our heels in or we can say, okay, My family's not Christian. How can I be a blessing? Will we be an open door to the gospel for our enemies and the enemies of the gospel, or will we be a hindrance to them coming to Christ? If you want your love to be genuine, if you want to love what is good, you will bless those who curse you with your words, with your actions. Illustration number six, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. These are two extremes, right? All this means is be dialed into what's going on in one another's life. Don't wait for someone to be in crisis to know what's happening. Rejoice with them over big things and small things. Uh, weep with them over big things and small things. If we don't know one another until crisis hits, we won't be any good to one another when crisis comes. So make it a practice to be dialed into the highs and lows of people in the church. Now we can't know each, all of us equally, but get a little posse in the church figure out who are your people and if every one of us is like a Lego block we each can connect with at least six people after that our Lego block might be full Uh, but you can you can connect yourself with six people do you have six people in the church that you know what's going on their highs and the lows there should be no lonely people in the church Illustration number seven, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I love this one uh, because it reminds me that the church is filled with natural enemies. Do you ever stop to think about that? Without Christ, most of us would hate each other. Or, that's biblical use of the word hate. Maybe you're like, I don't hate anybody. Well, what I mean by that is we wouldn't be hanging out together. We wouldn't be doing life together. We wouldn't naturally bump into one another out in the marketplace. The the church is filled with natural enemies. This is what God does. God brings a zealot and a tax collector and a fisherman, and He says, I want you three to be three of my disciples to be filled with the agape love of God and to go out and to change the world. Those three kinds of men don't get along in the first century. Tax collectors and fishermen and zealots. And so it is in every local church. People that would never be called together are called together. And so we are to love one another and to exercise a harmony with one another, which means that we need to build friendships that overcome natural boundaries. Do you have someone in the church that just rubs you the wrong way? Of course you do. Of course you do. And so do I. And I rub some of you the wrong way too. Okay. So, get busy getting to know one another. And and from the friction and the difficulty, begin to build friendships with the love of God. There's no place in the church for the natural divisions of the world to continue to exist. And one of the ways that this verse in the book of James talks about this is there's no place in the church for class divisions. Associate with the lowly. You who have much, associate with those who have little. And you who have little, it's not easy to associate with those who have much, is it? So it goes both ways. And as much as we want to exhort those who have much to get off their high horse and to associate with those who have little, those who have little have their own high horses that they need to get off and stop being so disgruntled against those who have much. But the disparity between those who have much and who have little should be shrinking in the church as we fulfill other aspects of genuine love, right? Giving, contributing to the needs of the saints. All things work together. There's no room in the church for a race division. There's only one race, the human race, but we all know that uh, ethnicities have developed over time. There's no place in the church for any kind of ethnic sense of superiority. We're all equally in need of God's grace. Illustration number 8, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Remember I said we're brothers and sisters, so uh, we're going to fight. Conflict is going to happen in the church. You know what can really rip apart a church? He wronged me, so I'm going to wrong him. Pay no, repay no one evil for evil. Let's not be surprised that someone in the church is going to sin against you. That's evil, right? That's To do evil is to sin. Someone is going to sin against you. And you are going to sin against someone. I don't think there's anyone here who could say, I've never sinned against someone in the church. We're all going to let one another down. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. You're going to sin against one another. The quickest way out of this is when you're sinned against, do not repay evil with evil. Which is so easy to do. Rather, what does he say? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I like that. Don't repay evil for evil. That's the impulse stop and think about it. Give thought. He doesn't just say do what is honorable. He says give thought. This is going to take some energy. It's going to take some work. Someone has sinned against me. I just need to stop. I need to calm down. I need to wait a, a day or a week before I respond. I need to prayerfully give thought what would be an honorable response so that if I get hauled before the elders or if it gets known in the church everyone would say well you acted honorably and the one who sinned against you was doing evil give thought to do what everyone would say you acted honorably in this situation that's exactly what it says right take a look at it give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all that is public opinion will be on your side if the details ever get out Because someone sinned against you and you restrained the evil impulse to repay evil for evil. This is abundantly practical. And from experience, let me just say, cool down on the email. Email is a great way to repay evil for evil. I've done it. I'll probably do it again. Not a good idea. Be slow to write emails. This is true for us in the church, but even outside of the church. If someone sins against you in the world, don't repay their evil for evil, but stop and think what would be honorable. Which brings us to illustration number nine. This is verses 18 to 20. There's a typo up there. It goes all the way to verse 20. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I want to start with the end. You'll heap burning coals on his head. There is a way to heap burning coals on someone's head where your kind deed is not genuine. Remember, this is all under the banner of let your love be genuine. There is a manipulative way to heat burning coals. Oh, well, you're going to do that to me? I'm going to be super passive aggressive with you and do a really nice thing in the sight of everybody else. That, that's not what Paul is saying here. This is not pas- uh, an invitation to passive aggression. It's not manipulative. It's a truly, you know... I've been forgiven so much. God has been so merciful and gracious with me. So what would be a way that I can be kind to someone who doesn't deserve my kindness? Injustice is a reality on a small scale and on a large scale. And what Paul is reminding us here is we cannot And we will not succeed if we try to right all the wrongs in this world, small or big. We're going to live under corrupt government until the return of Christ, period. The church is going to stumble along, holding fast to the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We're a ship that's going to make it safely to harbor even though we've got a huge hole in our hull. And though we're taking on water, we're bailing as fast as we can, and Jesus said we're gonna make it. There's injustice in the world, small scale, large scale. And what Paul is reminding us here, you will never let your love be genuine. You will never love what is good and hate what is evil until you realize you cannot fix the world. It's not our job. You have to leave room for the vengeance of God. And trust that one day Jesus Christ will return and he will make all things right. He will judge the living and the dead. If you believe that, let God deal with it. It's amazing. Once that pressure of making all things right is lifted off your shoulders how liberated you are to love people to love people in the face of their injustice knowing that God will deal with it you don't need to deal with it God will deal with it so to summarize then these nine illustrations, it's not exhaustive. The Bible it w- w- would fill this out significantly more. But what Paul has done in verses 10 through 20, these nine illustrations, is to help us to define what is good and what is evil. What is the good response, the good desire, the good action? What is the evil desire, the evil response, the evil action? Choose good, not evil, because if... You know what is good and you choose what is good. If you love what is good, if you do to the best of your ability by the grace and mercy of God what is good, if you hate and you seek not to do what is evil, then your love will be genuine. You will be a vessel that is receiving the agape love of God and you will fill up and you will overflow. But if you trip over that which is good and evil if you love what is evil and do what is evil you will not be filled up with the agape love of god you will not overflow with the agape love of god and you'll become one of the problem people in the church and if in the church then in the world because the church in union with Christ is the great hope of the world. And when the church is crippled because the church is filled with people who love and do evil, then there's no hope for the world. And when we are loving and doing that which is evil, as defined here, not only are we no good to the world, but we are not worshiping God. Remember, this all comes back to presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to the God who saved us. And the greatest good and the greatest pleasure in the life of a Christian is to rightly worship God. See how this all fits together? All of this is a way in which we respond to the initiative of God through Christ. So if you're struggling in these areas, two solutions for you. Number one, you need to go back and revisit Romans 1-11. to Refresh yourself on what is true. We were going to hell in a handbasket. Our destination was exile and condemnation, wrath, judgment. But he has plucked us from the fire Called us children, made us children, exalted us, promising to resurrect us, to seat us on the very throne of Jesus Christ and give us the new heavens and the new earth. And we will reign over every creature forever and ever in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, how ought we to live our lives? Let your love be genuine. Hate evil, love good, do what is good. Be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. It's challenging, but we know that we're not expected to perform these things in order to be right with you or to maintain our rightness with you. You've done it all. We are simply to respond to the grace and love at work in us to fill up with your love so that we overflow. God, I know there's some here today who are feeling empty. Uh, Their their love tank is empty. They, They don't feel your love. They're definitely not overflowing with it. So they cannot love this way God I pray if, if any of these are unsaved save them make them new and fill them up so that they can worship you by loving genuinely others are saved and our sin has blocked the experience of fellowship with you and though we maintain our right standing with you and the hope of Christ is ours uh, we are limping through life because our sin is blocking the inflow of your experiential agape love. We know that you don't love us any less, but we are not experiencing that love. So God, please remove the barriers, remove the sin that we may love and do good so that we might worship you fully. God, if there's anyone here in either of those positions, I pray that they would know that that is true of them And even now cry out because it is your good pleasure to overwhelm us with your love. We're so thankful that we serve a God who is perfect love. Now perfect your love in us. In Christ's name, amen.